Hey, everybody. Hello, and welcome to the Reverend Hunter podcast. This is Tony Jones, a.k.a. the Reverend Hunter. And I'm joined, as always, by the hearty to my laurel, Brandon. I've heard of them. I know they're from <laughs> old film time, I think, but that's about it. You're a little, you're, what are you, 10 years younger than me? Yep. When I was growing up, Laurel and Hardy, they they would show Laurel and Hardy movies on like Saturday afternoons on on TV. Oh, so it was, it was and, kid-friendly uh, entertainment. Yeah. Oh, it's, uh, yeah, yeah. It's slapstick. Um, a lot of fat jokes. Probably wouldn't fly so much today. It was like the fat guy and the skinny guy. I think much uh, of our childhood entertainment probably wouldn't fly today. I think true. I, think, I just remember my dad laughing his head off, and my grandpa too. They just love that slapstick humor. Oh my goodness! <laughs> Three Stooges right in that same wheelhouse. Yeah, it's very similar to the Three Stooges, exactly. But since there are three of them, I couldn't go with that as our that's, intro that's until fair. we until we have a third <laughs> person on our podcast. Uh, well, buddy. August is here. How are you feeling about it? Uh, I mean, it's cool because August is one of my favorite months with weather and travel and all that stuff. It's uncool because that means there's some, like the last month of summer, pretty much. Yeah. How, are, how, you state, I, are you a state fair guy? I am a state fair guy. I'm one of those Atta people that boy. falls into the trap of uh, people watching and fried foods. Love it, man. Me too. I am a huge state fair guy. People are you know, it, for listeners who aren't from Minnesota, people are really split on the state fair in Minnesota. You, nobody's ambivalent about the state fair. I people are either they love it and they go every year, or they're like, I went once, I hated it. Why do you? Why do you people go? Yeah, no, I, I'm I'm the type of person that can go multiple days. I uh, it's just it's just a fun environment to be around, and it only happens once a year, so why not? I agree. I think it's top notch. I think. Um, What's your favorite food there that you get? I, oh, my goodness. Uh, favorite food. I mean, I always get a Prano Pup. There you go. I always get Tom Thumb Mini Donuts. Classic. I always get a, I always get a milkshake in the, in the dairy building. All right. Well, you, you've got the classics covered. That's yeah. So that's what we do. We go with our kids. We, we have this certain route we go. Um, Suge Emery, who has been a guest on this podcast, was our absolute cornerstone of every visit to the fair because he juggled but he has retired from juggling so i don't know what if if there's going to be some entertainment um but i don't know man i usually courtney loves the um sweet corn ice cream oh that's um, really good i usually get a beer in the like minnesota beer garden uh, I don't know. How about you? What you got a one food you hit every single year? You know, the one food I hit every year is the the, the turkey sandwich mm. because that's a classic one. Yes. Um, I, also, I also make sure to hit up the elk burger over at that. Um, I forget the name of the place, but yeah, one of the wilderness places that serves all the different kinds of meat. Nice. Um, they have an elk burger there. That's just really good. I get it every year. Well, that's awesome, man. Maybe maybe we'll run into each other at the fair or. or- you know, if we're there the same day, grab a beer together. That would be super fun. I think, I think the Talk North Network should have a booth, and we should do live podcasting out right? there. That's personally what I think. I think we should piggyback off the Minnesota Bound gigantic booth that they got there and do a cast yeah. from there. <laughs> Heck yeah! Maybe, yeah, maybe I mean, we'll all your you're a former radio guy. There's a lot of radio guys out there. I know. I actually got to do a. I actually got to be on air from the fair. 
Uh, oh, that's cool. When I did radio, it was it was that's an cool. interesting experience. That's for sure. <laughs> I believe it. <laughs> well, hey, speaking of meat and meat sandwiches, we have a meat expert on the podcast uh, this episode. Meredith Lee lives in Asheville, North Carolina. Uh, she's the author of the Ethical Meat Handbook, which is has just come out in a new uh, revised and updated edition. I would strongly, strongly recommend it. Um, the link to her website is in the show notes. Click it. Follow her on Instagram for sure. Um, Mara Lee, you'll see, is M-E-R-E, and then her last name, L-E-I-G-H, is her kind of social media handle on those different spaces. Uh but she's awesome. You know, a, f- a friend of mine named Ann Kim, who is one of the top restaurateurs in the Twin Cities and uh, won the James Beard Award, et cetera, et cetera, is just incredible. She reached out to me, man, man maybe a year ago and was like, you got to have Meredith Lee on your podcast. Um, and I do what Ann Kim tells me to do because she's awesome. And so I started following Meredith and, and reached out to her and she was very gracious to come on. Boy, her knowledge and thoughtfulness about being an ethical carnivore is really, really astounding. And uh, I have to have her on again because I feel like we only got to half of the stuff I even wanted to talk about. Um, so it's it's really great. I think you'll love it. Um, please follow her and buy her book and uh, and support the fantastic work that she's doing you can support us on the reverend hunter podcast by subscribing liking rating reviewing and sharing this podcast episode and you know what i'm going to share this episode with a couple people i know who are uh vegetarians but meat curious because uh, meredith's story i think will will really affect them and, and maybe influence them so with that Let's pass it on to this awesome conversation I had with Meredith Lee, the uh, the author of the award-winning Ethical Meat Handbook. Thanks for listening, everybody. Hey, Meredith, thank you so much for coming on the Reverend Hunter podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited. Congratulations on the second edition revised and expanded of the Ethical Meat Handbook. Thanks. It's uh, it seems to be like it's winning awards based on what I'm seeing on your social media. Yeah, that was quite surprising. It's been it's an IACP finalist mm. for the cookbook awards in food issues, which feels like an important category. So yeah, I'm stoked. <laughs> I love it, and I want to. I mean, we should both. I got I got a shout out to Ann Kim here at the beginning who was the one who uh, told me you were a must-have guest on my podcast. Oh, that's awesome. Love Ann Kim. Yeah. As, yeah. yeah. Ann Kim is incredible. And ha- I'm very proud to have her as a friend and and uh, to be Amen. able to eat, eat at her restaurants around here. I which bet. I do as often as possible. Yeah, that's on my, my list of goals is to make it to Minnesota so I can eat at her restaurants. Oh, come on. Yeah. Yeah, someday. Yeah, you got to do it. Um, can can you start? I would love to hear you tell me about that first piece of meat that you ate in Vietnam 
mm-hmm. after having been um, a vegetarian, maybe even a vegan for several years? Sure. That's a great question. Um, so it was water buffalo. Um, and actually, I was working in a rural sort of village precinct in North Vietnam called Hai Duong. And I was eating in the home of a farmer, a female farmer, every day. And I had met her water buffalo and mm. kind of witnessed the sort of full circle farming that was going on there, which is very different from anything I'd ever seen before coming from America where we were gardening in straight rows and vegetables were very separate from animals. Um, and she brought me out into the, into the very wet environment of her farm. And we walked around with the water buffalo and then, you know, I think it was at a community meal several days later when, I mean, it wasn't that specific water buffalo that we were eating, but it was water buffalo from her farm. And the thing about Vietnamese communal eating is that if somebody places a piece of food into your bowl, it's a gesture of friendship. Mm -hmm. And I was not eating meat at that point in my life, but I was there with my little bowl and this woman, Loy, who I had been cultivating a relationship with over the last week, um, even though we didn't speak the same language, reached across and put a piece of water buffalo in my bowl. And I just had this moment where I was like, I can't say no to this. And so I ate it. And it was kind of tough and chewy, <laughs> um, but salty. And, mm-hmm. you know, that sort of started an, in- an entire inquiry for me about the way that I thought about food and farming and the impact that I was having as an eater. Uh, so does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. And you, you, in, in the book, you, you preface that story by saying, um, you know, when you became a, a vegetarian, you did it, you did it without much study. You saw maybe what a film in, in school or something about mm-hmm. in, the, you know, industrial meat um, process. And that was kind of enough for you as an adolescent to just make this pretty spontaneous decision to stop eating meat. And I don't mm-hmm. think, I don't think you're alone in that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, I think there are a lot of people in our culture, particularly as, and, and this is one thing that I, I'm really glad that you address early on in the book because, you know, you and I probably share this, but as we're we're westerners we're white we're we're people of privilege a lot of people in the world they don't have that option of going vegan mm-hmm. i mean is that one of the things you've experienced by traveling the world and and seeing how people interact with meat totally i mean i think for, there's a lot of things that came up for me when you were talking but about that. But I mean, I think that really the less educated we are as eaters about food systems and food, the more likely we are to be vegetarian or vegan. Mm -hmm. And that's because I think there are so many like very prominently aggravating things about food, but because the answers or entry points to solutions for those problems are so complex 
that we just reach for binary solutions, right? Mm, and so yeah. I think, and also the fact that we are growing increasingly more urbanized as like globally, you know, urban folks without connection to land um, often don't understand sort of like the life, death, life cycles that fuel farming and food and nature in general. And so death becomes this thing that is very violent and, and scary in, in ways that don't even relate to our own mortality. Like, of course it relates to our own mortality, but in other ways it just becomes like this wrongdoing, right. Um, against animals. And so I think that's another thing that fuels it. And I feel like, you know, if, if you look at keepers of livestock globally, um, they are majority non-white women. In terms of like the keepers of genetics of livestock and the keepers of the animals themselves. Um, and so that's really fascinating. That is fascinating. Um, like in our culture, we see corporatized, industrialized meat systems being very white and very male. And it's actually true that as agriculture systems become more capital intensive, um, and more corporate, they become more white and more male dominated. Whereas like peasant farmers globally are very reliant on women. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, you know, to that point, like women are also the feeders of family globally. And yeah. so that kind of connects to the fact that it's sort of not within the tradition <laughs> of of a lot of rural people in the world to just cut meat out, you know, because it's so culturally significant um, to the family's life way or yeah. to the way women care for others. Um, and well, and I think also the land ethic that's associated with keeping animals and being involved in the death process and all the things that our culture has less and less understanding of, those are very like spiritual things you know, that are, mm -hmm. that are significant and central to cultural traditions and religious traditions in other parts of the world. I love that. I have a friend uh, who lives in Colorado and is a, really a master butcher and you and she would get along famously. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'll send you a, I'll send you a link with some stuff I did with her um, awesome. offline here, but she is, it's funny because she is a very, um, progressive queer woman mm -hmm. and she got the word housewife tattooed on her arm for some uh -huh. of these very same reasons you're talking about. She's like, I want to the housewife isn't, um, you know, the, the fifties housewife who stays at home and right. um, doesn't work or whatever. Housewife is like the, the woman who preserves all the food and, you know, keeps it in the root cellar. And the woman who, like you say, uh, hangs on, you know, like uh, um, uh, safeguards the, the genetics of these animals and things like that. It's really, you know, the, uh, gives helps these animals give birth so many times. And that's right. so, yeah, that's, that's a fascinating I definitely connection. want to talk to her because okay, <laughs> I, I'm actually working on a project very slowly with a friend um, about ancestral slaughter mm. and, and specifically how women of color hold America's land ethic because they have the closest cultural ties of American people mm -hmm. to the slaughter process and the ritual of slaughter. Um, and 
I'm here. I mean, I've spoken with a Cheyenne Sioux woman as well as a, a, a black woman who is a minister in California. Hmm. And it, it's echoed throughout their narrative, basically, that even if women weren't doing the work of slaughter, they were holding the ethos, right? And teaching yeah. the men and the sons that they had to pray when they went out on the hunt, right? And if yeah. and if the matriarchs hadn't been there to hold that wisdom, it it would have gone away and and the power essentially would have been abused. The power that humans have, you know, as predator species would have been abused. And I thought that was just so fascinating, you know. Um mm-hmm. to hear that testimony. Uh, that was the the Cheyenne Sioux uh woman who who shared that yeah, I love that. There's a there's a movie called Buffalo Hunt, a documentary about a uh-huh. Lakota, a sacred Lakota um, buffalo hunt. That um, I'll send you the link to that. So oh, I think man. it's free on Amazon Prime or something. Please but do. Yeah, it's pretty pretty fascinating deal, and I'm hoping to get the filmmakers on the podcast as well because I do think that you know your book is so much in the zeitgeist of of what i'm hearing from so many people right now and that is i want to know where my food comes from i want to be back in touch with it i know i need to um you know what what's what's michael pollan's phrase i you need to eat uh less food more green stuff yeah, i mean i can <laughs> yeah, yeah i, I don't know the, the, the catch I can't remember exact but you know i people are like i know i need to eat yeah more plants i need to eat less red meat but but it's more like as opposed to going that binary and saying no i'm just done with meat is saying i actually i want to know where meat comes from and you know i y- you raise livestock i hunt um game Mm-hmm. I've had so many people, I mean, it's, it's been especially, it was especially driven during COVID because hunting was one of the things you could do, in, uh, right. you know, it's outdoors and there, there were less restrictions on, in fact, a lot of, a lot of like state agencies were encouraging people to get out and, and hunt and hunting licenses, sales were up and stuff like that. And I just had a lot of people who, have never hunted or used to hunt when they were younger with their dad and now they don't anymore and would like to get back into it. So I think, don't you think there's something going on in the zeitgeist of, of culture that people are becoming aware that it it's just unsustainable the way that we raise and consume meat? Oh, totally. People are very aware of it. I think that they come at it from different, um, different positions, you know, of permission or power or privilege. And mm-hmm. so it becomes a really interesting conversation depending on who you're talking to about what we do about that. But definitely, you know, there's an increasing awareness and an increasing desire to access something outside of business as usual when it comes to food. For sure. do you, yeah. And do you think, I mean, as the author of the ethical meat eater uh, handbook, I, I think I know your answer to this, but I'd love to hear you expound on it. And that is, do you think, and I want to get into the intricacies of what it means to be an ethical meat eater here, but is it possible for 7 billion people to eat meat ethically? 
Like, is there mm-hmm. enough meat? Can we, I, I often, you know, people say, will say this to me, for instance, I'll just be like, well, yeah, yeah, you want everybody to hunt. But of course, if everybody hunted, there would be no more white-tailed deer. Like if, if we were all eating white-tailed deer every night instead of hamburger every night, we'd run out of mm-hmm. white-tailed deer. So what you're suggesting isn't actually realistic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been pretty sensitive to that since I started speaking more publicly about this, you know, because when you write a book, you have to like make up your mind about something. Oh, yeah, I know. You might have conveniently been able to like (laughs) remain nebulous about. And so I struggled a lot with some of the things that I would like walk around saying before, you know, Mm -hmm. when I finally sat down to write my book. Like oftentimes you'll hear people in the sort of like ethical meat cohort say something like, everyone should, you know, experience slaughter, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm like, okay, well, that's clearly not going to happen, you know, right, so let's right. back up a few steps and, <laughs> or you'll hear people say things like, you shouldn't eat meat unless you're willing to like take the life of the animal. I'm like, all right, well, that's obviously not realistic, you know, mm-hmm. considering that there's 7 billion people and they're highly urbanized for the most part. And so I, you know, I love your question because I think it's something that we should challenge ourselves to answer No, I don't think that we can do ethical meat for all the people on the earth if we continue to eat meat, particularly in like, in like the Northern Hemisphere, Western part of the world, if we continue to eat meat in the way that we do. And the Um, way, by the way, you mean the quantity or you mean the the cuts? The quantity and the production. Okay. Um. But I think there's also like a lot of untapped potential in the in production to where like more animals could be raised in a more environmentally ethical way. But in many ways, we like we won't fund that research or we won't give it the time of day. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, There's land that could be utilized that is not accessible. Um. And so there's lots of like potential solutions that could make it realistic to raise more animals. But it's like, you know, that's a lot of what ifs. It gets into a lot of what ifs. Similarly yeah. with um, post-production infrastructure like slaughter and processing, we we all know from COVID that there are already a lot of bottlenecks there. Yes. So the question I have often for a lot of folks in the regenerative agriculture, like grass-fed community is like, you know, it's all fine and well that you can like stock up and build soil and produce a lot of animals. But do, are we going to build, when are we going to be able to build the infrastructure to actually slaughter all these animals in a way that is decentralized, right? And not um, following the same paradigm of mechanized suffering that's been created with vertically integrated meat and, and consolidated meat industry. Yeah, so I, I, mean, I think yeah. it's a tricky question. <laughs> I, I, I have a friend who, uh, and I'm sure it was happening, you know, around Asheville as well, but we had hog farmers in Minnesota who had hogs they couldn't get rid of during COVID because of these yeah. bottlenecks you talk about. And so mm-hmm. they would post on different forums on Facebook or whatever, hey, you can come and you know, buy a hog from me for 200 bucks. So mm-hmm. I have a friend who's a hunter and therefore because he hunts deer, you know, he's 
he's pretty decent with a butcher knife and figured he could, you know, figure out how to butcher a hog. So he goes to the farm and buys the hog. And then the farmer says, I can't kill, I can't actually, it's against the law for me to actually kill this hog Mm -hmm. for you. That's true. So you, here's a shotgun with a slug in it. You have to do it. You go drive this truck with this hog in it off my property onto the county road. Then you can shoot the hog in the head and then you can come back and, and we'll, you know, then we'll figure out where, what we do from there. Like load it into your truck and you can take it home and butcher it. Did he do it? Yeah, he did it. Yeah. Well, he's a hunter. I guess he did. But what's interesting there is like, I'd be interested to read that law because actually North Carolina, it, it would still be illegal because the farmer can't assist in the slaughter, nor can the farmer provide any equipment. Well, it probably was still illegal, yeah. <laughs> but he was Which like, is whatever. you know, I go mean, do it on the county road. No one's going to yeah. know, but, but just don't do it on my property. Or that's wh- right. But yeah, you're right. It probably still was illegal. But again, it was like, then you're, you're reading, we're reading these stories in, in the paper of, you know, piles and piles of hogs just being, just like being put to flame because they, they're, yeah. they, they can't get processed. Well, yeah, I'm not knocking the illegal solution. Believe me, I I am. (laughs) I've been working long and hard to help people with illegal solutions to act specifically accessing good meat. Mm -hmm. Because I think like back to your previous question, like what what are the realities we're facing? Like, even if we put like perfect meat production and meat processing into place tomorrow, um, we wouldn't, it wouldn't be on the level of affordability that the industrialized over-efficient harmful system has created, right? So it would place a lot of people in a really bad position in terms of accessing food. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, the question is difficult because it's like, yeah, can we do ethical meat for everybody? And it's like, well, yeah, maybe if a lot of people stopped eating as much meat as they do, and we shored up like all these systems all the way across the supply chain and also abolished like government subsidies and also like took down the oligarchy, right? You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't know how to like really answer <laughs> right, that question. But, right. but the idea is like doing what we can to create models, I think regionally that support yeah. people regionally is, is really the goal of ethical meat. It's not to like solve all the world's problems, but it's to like shore up infrastructure and build skills at the community level for cooperation and like a different way of thinking and doing thinking about and doing food that will just start to sort of defy the status quo Mm -hmm. um, and see what happens. Yeah. I'll tell you one other quick little story that happened to me in in the last year. And I was out in South Dakota and on some pheasant hunting land with a, a buddy of mine who owns some farms out there. And we were walking the land while we were hunting a year ago with, um, a biologist from Pheasants Forever. And oh, wow. we're walking through some land that's called CRP, Crop Reserve Program land, which in which a farmer gets paid by the federal government not to cultivate right. crops, you know, let, let it kind of go wild or whatever. And there's very strict, you know, the, there's very strict kind of rules on CRP land. Um, but this this one parcel of land was is all covered with thistles. And the farmer said... Um, I mean, he's not an active farmer. He owns the farm is, is what I should say. So the owner of this land said, you know, what can I do all these thistles? I really want this to be great, you know, pheasant habitat. And of course, pheasant is like a, a barometer species. So where pheasants thrive in the upper Midwest, other, other game and non-game species thrive as well. 
Mm-hmm. So it's good for a lot of different uh, animals. And the guy said, you should run some cattle through here, to be mm-hmm. honest. you What? And this, you know, this guy said, what? What do you mean run cattle? We, I, I thought we can't run cattle through CRP. No, here, you need the cattle to come in here. They will eat up this thistle. They will defecate all over here and their hooves will break, bust up the soil. That's what you need. And I, it was one of these things where it was one, of, it was like light bulbs were going off in my head because I thought, well, this is, it, here's an example of, you know, kind of cross pollinating as it were different um, ways of farming in, in this, in this land that's supposed to be totally wild, but actually, no, let's run some beef cows through here and it'll help the land. Right. I feel like land management is like an ongoing, long, ancient, as well as current conversation. Right. And like thinking that it's just a conversation between humans and like plants and soil, like that's the vegan solution, right? Like just remove the herbivore from the equation. (laughs) And like as a hunter, I'm sure you understand this too. Like nature doesn't function without the herbivore. Right. You know, and like you, you can't take those animals out of conversation. And your example of the thistle is a really good one because thistle is nature telling us that there's been a disturbance. Hmm. Like it's an indicator species of a disturbed soil. And usually some kind of like hard pan, as the man said, like needs to be broken up, needs to be aerated. Yep. So, you know, what is the animal that can get in conversation with that soil, with that plant? It's not a human. The humans not, what are we going to do? I mean, I guess we could go in there with our fossil fuels and like mow it down, but that's not like a long-term solution. But the herbivore can go in there, as the man said, and like really get down and dirty and create and open up a different part of the conversation that is more vital, right? And takes us to a different place. Uh, You have this, you, you have a line that's so good that you have it in there in twice, which I love because it's that good of a line. (laughs) No, truly. I choose food with the sun in it. Oh yeah. I choose living food. I mean, you have this, this preface to the second edition, I think is beautiful and brilliant. And I, I, I've been through some trauma and, and and, um, a marriage that ended and a new marriage that brought me great life. And you make a little reference to that, that, things have happened in your life between the first edition of the book and the second. And um, I love this and the hooves and the spit and the dung and the piss of the animals who eat that food will be the only things that can bring back any lively conversation, any discourse Mm -hmm. with the elements, with the beetles, with us. And then the next paragraph, you write this, I choose food with the sun in it. What do you mean by that? Well, the sun is like the power behind all life on earth, right? And so the job of agriculture is really capturing sunlight. And if you think about like, I mean, one thing I'd kind of go through in the book is like describing how the sun's energy is used throughout the farm. You know, like everybody learns about photosynthesis in like the sixth grade or something. So like reaching back to sixth grade, the sun shines down on plant leaves, plants take in that energy and convert it to sugar. And that's how they feed themselves. And they're uniquely like plants and some bacteria and some plankton are uniquely capable of doing this and no other organisms can do it. 
So we have to have the plants, obviously. Um, but what's interesting is that the plants send actually something like anywhere between 40 to 70% of that sugar product that they create, they send it down into the soil in the form of what's called plant root exudates. And that is, they're doing that in order to feed the life in the soil because the life in the soil is what produces like sustenance for the plant, right? So the, so the plant is actually feeding its own food, right? And the, and so those, those, microbes in the soil have their own entire system of of interaction i mean they're eating each other they're dying they're metabolizing they're doing all these things it's like a whole other world underground and as they're doing that you know they're creating humus which is the stable form of carbon in the soil and there's so many different you know the healthiest soils that are doing that for us that are actually taking carbon out of the atmosphere sequestering carbon, producing the most life-giving food, they have so much in terms of like vitamins and nutrients and different qualities in them that we have lost in our food system, you know, Mm. over the last several decades. I mean, you can look into research about the nutrient density of an apple just declining dramatically between like the, even the 1980s and now. And and it's because we've really stripped our soils of these vital nutrients. And, and really, it, it takes these pure interactions that are already built into nature to produce, those, to produce those nutrients. And that's the herbivore eating the plant, the plant growing back after the herbivore has hit it because of the saliva, because of the dung and the urine of that herbivore. The plant grows back with a greater leaf area and more lateral stems, which means it has a greater surface area of leaves in order to capture sunlight, right? And so more Mm. photosynthesis equals more photosynthetic product equals more plant root exudate equals more microbial food equals higher quality soil equals higher quality food grown from the soil, right? And so you know, when I say I want to eat food with the sun in it, like if you, if you have experienced homegrown food, right. Or if you've experienced really vital food, then you can smell it and you can sort of, you can sort of feel and smell and see the fermentation and the crazy, like life, death, life teeming in the, in the soil and in that space. And the food that comes from it is so much more life-giving than the food that's been grown, you know, from dead soil and shipped across oceans, you know, and purchased off the grocery store shelf. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, that's also, you know, sort of my argument against lab grown meats is like, this is something really extractive and reductionist that we're putting together and thinking we can like pop a pill to feed ourselves the actual vital nutrients that keep us alive are things that only nature can provide with the sun at, at the very source of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What I think there are a couple key concepts following up on that. Then when you go from this kind of idea of the food with the sun in it to what does that actually mean? How do we do that? Which is obviously kind of the heart and soul of the book is raising animals uh, and, and butchering animals. 
mm-hmm. you know, in that in ethical ways. Um, what can, can you describe the food gestalt? What do you mean by that phrase? Because I think it's a pretty important phrase and kind of that hinge of the book. Oh, sure. So gestalt being that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And I, and that's true of all things about food. It's true about the way we think about diet. It's true of the way we think about our bodies. It's true of the way we think about agriculture. You know, our culture has really taught us to think about things in a reductionist way, which means like I take it apart, you know, I take this microphone apart into all of its constituent pieces and I know exactly how this microphone works, you know, but um, if I examine all the pieces, I know how it works, mm-hmm. but nature doesn't work that way. Like nature is, you know, what I say is that nature is an infinite feedback loop of diversity and synergy. So there's going to be constantly like many, many different players. That's the diversity. And then, you know, all of those players together are going to create something that is way greater than any one player can create by itself. And so you can't understand nature in a reductionist way and you can't build nature-based business, right? Business that relies on our natural resources in a reductionist way because it's missing like the whole language, right? (laughs) That, Mm -hmm. That that business is based upon. And I think that's the mistake that agriculture has made. And it's the mistake that we have then subsequently made in like the way we understand nutrition, the way that we understand cooking and on down the line. And so yeah, the whole like ethical meat equation is really, it's similar, you know, it's like, there's tons of entry points. That's the good news. Mm-hmm. But the bad news is it's really blindingly complex because it's not just about like, it's not just about your buying dollar. You know, it's not just about like, Oh, if everybody learns how to butcher, we'll be fine. You know, it's deeply political. It's yes. deeply cultural and spiritual. It's deeply environmental. You know, it's deeply based in our built in environment, you know, there need to be changes and improvements across all of those areas. And so I think, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's funny because I'm so, I'm so freaking pissed at my two senators from Minnesota, both of whom are Democrats and, and often champion progressive causes, but both of them in the last week have come out in favor of more ethanol subsidies Mm. for more farmers, Mm -hmm. more corn, more corn Mm -hmm. on the landscape, which is just absolutely madness. I know it's madness. Um, you, you know, one of the things I love about the book is that you, you confront this head on this question of, I mean, it's almost like you're trying to, um, cut, cut the reader off before she or he can ask the question about like, but it costs so much more to buy, you know, fill in the blank, like whatever free range chicken or grass fed beef or whatever the case may be. And you, you get, I mean, you go so far as to like graph out how much, um, this, this meat costs, um, Mm -hmm. from beginning to end. Um, and, and and you mentioned this, I mean, speaking of the ethanol subsidies, that, you know, a lot of the meat we eat is actually subsidized by the federal government. Right. So, you know, we're buying meat actually at Costco for less than it really actually costs to produce this Oh, yeah. It's, it's a loss to actually raise the animals in a lot of these systems. But there's, 
you know, vertical integration and there's subsidy and there's all these different things that are built into the corporate system that takes the risk essentially out of doing that business. So when we start to try to take that monster apart and have independent businesses doing all the steps in the supply chain ethically, and then trying to each one of them eke out a profit, you know, or like a living wage, then things do get very, very expensive, you know? And I think, you know, I, I definitely started out in my journey being like, people should pay more for their food. And I think in general, you know, a lot of people could pay more for their food, specifically mm-hmm. people who care about this stuff, you mm-hmm. know, who are safe enough in their lives to care about sourcing and like where they're getting their food. And those are the people that I hear from the most about how expensive it is. Really? Which is sort of baffling to me because I'm like, if you have the privilege and the position to be spending more for your food, like that's why I made the graph so that it's just very clear how much this actually costs in order for it to be possible for you to enjoy this product. Mm -hmm. You know, I think on the flip side of that is, you know, my, my education over the last decade of just how closely our food choices and our food desires um, and our food access are to like systemic issues of racism and classism and like the wealth disparity and things in our culture. And so I also acknowledge that a lot of people are not safe enough to prioritize good food And so another piece of ethical meat is not just like clarifying how much this costs and convincing people who can spend more to spend more, but it's also Mm -hmm. about increasing access for those who cannot. Yeah. And what are the ways that we can do that? And, and that is when the conversation can get really interesting because it turns out there's a lot of regulatory barriers to really doing meat on a community level. Right. And so that's when we get into like, the illegal stuff and like the mm-hmm. mutual aid stuff and, and the really sort of anarchist um, activities mm-hmm. that are, are really essential, I think towards re giving food back to people mm-hmm. essentially. You, you have these um, categories like first economy, middle economy, this kind of thing. Is this, mm-hmm. is, is that part of what you're getting out of entry points for people getting back into, um, you know, being able to eat and provide ethical meat for their family? I mean, partially, I think, so first economy being like the economy of the home and middle economy being like a local or regional economy. And then the external, I think is how I characterized like more corporate, more distant, Mm -hmm. um, ways of doing trade, um, and enterprise and, you know, I think that there are entry points there, like either do it yourself or support somebody locally who's doing it as a business, as opposed to just buying it from the engine or whatever of industry. But I think I also mean in terms of entry point, like um, becoming political, mm-hmm. like a lot of people that I work with, like choose, they're like, well, I can't afford, you know, additional, um, I can't afford to pay more for my meat or I, it's not practical for me to do my own butchery or make my own charcuterie. But what I can do is get really loud, you know, Mm -hmm. with my Senator or, Mm -hmm. um, you know, in my local community to, you know, try to create like people who are creating, um, 
the possibility for folks in urban areas to raise animals. You know, that's another a way of getting political, you know, that doesn't involve like going to Washington. You know right. what I mean? So I think, you know, whether it's changing the way you cook, changing the way you buy, changing the way you eat, um, you know, getting in community, helping others, cooperating rather than trying to do things as an individual. You know, I think like the nuclear nature of our food acquisition, you know, since like, I guess, you know, the world wars, you mm-hmm. know, has sort of made it more difficult for people to like open source food and share food and share labor. So there's like lots yeah. of ways, you know, lots of entry points. Yeah, there, there does, there, there is, um, don't you think social media though, in some ways for all of its evils <laughs> ha- gives people a little more power back? I know like I'm a part of a Facebook group called Farm Direct Minnesota where farmers... Cool you know, post, Hey, I've got, you know, I'm, I'll be slaughtering 12 chickens tomorrow. You know, anybody who wants to come and buy one, I'm 45 minutes outside of the twin cities. Here's how much they're going to cost that kind of thing. Totally. I mean, we tried to organize this huge meat mutual aid thing during COVID here where I'm at in Western North Carolina. And we use social media to organize almost everyone, Hmm. you know, workers, buyers, farmers it was pretty awesome that's awesome yeah um all right i want to talk about death how, how awesome. is that okay <laughs> yeah <laughs> i think it's another it's a topic you and i are both um very comfortable talking about one of your uh four that your your introduction starts with four kind of statements about what you define ethical meat uh, and mm-hmm. the second of those is that ethical meat comes from an animal that was afforded a good death. Do you mm-hmm. think that part of the problem we've we've so hidden away the death of animals and the death mm-hmm. of humans, and it's mm-hmm. so different. I mean, for for two hundred thousand years of the history of Homo sapiens, every every bipedal homo sapien who lived would have been in touch with death, seen animals die and seen, uh, seen other human beings die. And Mm -hmm. and we have in, we have really extricated that from everyday life. And do you think it's part of the reason people struggle with ethical meat eating is because our culture doesn't really know what to do with death. Totally. Totally. I think, I think that us hiding away death in our culture is, it's not just one of the reasons why we don't know how to eat our food, but it's, it's related to so many other things like pulling ourselves away from that discomfort has done us disservice in so many areas like of dealing with social problems, you know, and, you know, environmental problems, because it's just a fact of life, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that, you know, one of the interesting things that I've observed through witnessing animals die, as well as witnessing people die, is that actually the dying are the most peaceful among us. Mm-hmm. And it's the living people who are bringing the fraught, you know, emotions and environment 
of death that people tend to associate with death. And I think that must be something that has happened over time, you know, that like living people are so afraid of death that now we become the ones who are characterizing death rather than the ones who are actually dying. Um, so do you, do you have any, um, when you slaughter an animal, do you have any rituals or does, does it affect you personally or emotionally or spiritually or anything like that? How does, how is that a part of the the life you live now? Oh, sure. It affects me. Um, I mean, my rituals are usually to try and find a place of calm and like connected centeredness beforehand, you know, and this has become especially important to me since I've started taking people through the slaughter process. Sure. Um, because I really believe that like the animal experience is a transference of your demeanor. So if I am anxious, if my heart is racing, if I am out of body, if I am projecting, then it becomes less of a peaceful transition for the animal. So trying to find a space where I can become as calm as possible um, is really important for me. And so for some people that's like prayer, you know, and for, for me, it's more like just getting some time alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly making sure that all of my tools are like up to snuff, um, mm-hmm. so that it goes well. Um, and then, you know, yeah, just like a recognition. I, I like, especially when I'm with other people to do a little bit of talking, you know, just recognizing that like the animal knows who we are, like the animal knows that we're the predator and they yeah. know that they're the prey, you know, and that's really important for people to see because they don't necessarily know that and understand that about the human animal conversation. And I think also like pointing out that animals have consciousness, they're aware of the world and they have self-consciousness. They're aware of themselves in the world, hmm. but they don't have ego like we do. And, you know, acknowledging that and saying like, when you witness this or when you go through this and also acknowledging for myself, like the feelings that I feel are not the feelings the animal feels, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I, yeah. I don't know. So I like, I have to recognize that what I'm feeling, I can be projecting it onto the animal, but to really know that those are my feelings and to be able to stay in the discomfort of those feelings and say, what does this mean? Or why do I feel this way? Or what does it teach me? And I think that that process of like mindfulness, like mindful slaughter mm-hmm. is, is really, tr- it, it can be so transformative. Like it has, I have seen people um, learn how to deal with grief because they've been through an animal slaughter. I've seen people learn how to deal with trauma like sexual trauma that they've experienced hmm. because they were able to, to go through an animal slaughter and sit through an animal slaughter. So when I say that, I, that like putting aside the death because we have the privilege to do so, like it really elucidates like all the other things that we, all the other conversations that we're avoiding because we have the privilege to do so right as a culture. Yeah. Um, I don't even know if I answered your question or if I just well, started. I just with have, yeah. Else, but, 
I I have so many thoughts and feelings around this, and I won't go into all of them, but last year on the opening of deer season, I shot two deer. I shot a big, beautiful year and a half year old, uh, one and a half year old doe in the morning. And then I went back out in the evening and I shot, um, like a four point buck. So he's probably also a year and a half old. Um, and I, I hunt for meat. I'm not a trophy guy. Um, and Mm -hmm. I do all the butchering myself and, well, I did not make a clean shot on that buck and, uh, I shot him in the front shoulder so I had to walk up to him and he was still very much alive, and, oh, yeah. but, but couldn't get up, you know, and I will tell you what I saw in his eyes is just what you said, that he knew he was the prey and I was mm-hmm. the predator. I mean, it was, you know, it was panic in his eyes. It was probably on a very kind of practical level, bad for the meat, mm-hmm. I'm guessing, because, mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Um, Nervous system stress. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All sorts of chemical reactions going on in his body as a result of it not being a clean shot. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it really taught me something, a couple things. I mean, one is that I need to be more disciplined as a hunter in only taking shots that are much, a much higher percentage kill shot. But it just also did remind me of this, predator prey relationship. And I, I don't know that I'll ever forget the look in that deer's eyes. Yeah. As it it lay on the ground, looking at me in, in absolute panic. Um, it was very, it was a very difficult experience and I'm an experienced hunter, but I also don't want to remove myself from that experience. I like, I don't want to forget. Right the experience of that deer, the consciousness of that deer, its interaction with me, what it thinks of me, who I am, what are my, uh, uh, what, what are the ethical implications upon me as a predator? The, these kind of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's a great story. Um, there's also a, um, a really visceral, uh, memory I have of an animal that, that I was involved with slaughtering that, wasn't bleeding out properly. I think it was just because it was the cuts were not precise and the, the animal was not panicked. The animal had fully surrendered to the death, but it was just taking too long. And I think that is something that will never leave my memory, you know, mm-hmm. and I don't know where I was going with that, but I think it's, I think it's important to know also like to not forget because you have to remember that like mistakes are going to happen yeah. <laughs> and it's possible that it'll happen again, despite your best intentions. Right. Yes. Um, but that's also part of like being human and being in conversation, you know, as a predator in, as part of nature, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about after the slaughter. Um, sure. Let's talk about butchery, and then I want you to finally give me a little pep talk on charcuterie because I find it totally intimidating. <laughs> so let's start. Great. Let's start with butchery. I love butchering animals. 
Mm-hmm. And I, I sent you a little something that I've written about butchering. And um, I find You write it, very well. Oh, thank you. That's kind. I, I find it um, spiritual. I find mm-hmm. I like the, the visceral, very physical nature of it, the activity of it. Um, you know, I, I was looking in your book and I saw like in, in the chicken butchery section about how you, you know, pull out the innards of the chicken. And I remember the first time I did that in a pheasant, just sticking my hand up in there and like yeah. pulling the guts out and thinking, oh my gosh, I, I can't, I don't know if I can do this. And now it's just, you know, second nature, the smell of it, the, the, right. the feel of it, everything about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so t- talk to me a bit about butchery and, and why people should do it themselves as much mm-hmm. as possible. Oh, how much time do we have? <laughs> um, I feel like, yeah, I mean, it's it's a little bit. I loved when you talked about the moment when it stops being an animal, it starts being meat. Because mm-hmm. um, that's something that I talk about a lot when I'm doing slaughter with people and also butchery when they don't have the benefit of having been involved in the slaughter, but they're doing the butchery. is like, um, there's a moment, it's like razor thin, where it goes from being an animal to being food. Yes. And like before that moment, everybody's like, you know, somber and like serious and thinking about their own death, and like quiet. And then after that moment, people are like cracking jokes. Mm, interesting. You know? And yeah. um, so I'm like, okay, like it's going to happen. You know, we're going to make this transition, but just try to notice it. That's all you can do. And then like subsequently, like I think it happens in butchery, right? When you're dressing or like say you're picking your first pig's head or for head cheese (laughs) Mm -hmm. and you're like digging out the eyeballs or whatever, (laughs) like it gives you that same feeling of like, oh man, this is like a living thing. And for me, it also happens in butchery when I access like perfectly access a joint and you like a, um, and you pull like the socket apart and yes. you see the ball of that joint and it's completely clean. It's like so clean. shiny white, beautiful, yes. untouched by blood, untouched by any other part of the body. And for me as a butcher, like that is always like, oh yeah, this was like a dynamic, artful living system, huh. you know, and I remember. And so I think there is like, you, you, you used a lot of words to describe that like feeling that I probably would have just described as like primal or visceral, but Mm. you did a really good job of being like, it's disgusting, but it's marvelous. Like there's all (laughs) these things that like kind of bring you closer to God, I guess, you know, about like butchering. And I very much resonated with what you wrote Hmm. because it does change you, you know? So I think that's one reason for people to do it. And then other reasons are, the, you know, it's purely practical, like the amount of food you get when you buy more whole and you break it down yourself, you know, is, yeah. is so much more than when you get it cut up and, and then whoever's doing the cutting deals with like the bones and other quote unquote waste. And then you walk away with this like high dollar, high labor, very small piece, you know, that you cook yeah it's it's the same for deer hunters because a lot of people who deer hunt drop their deer off 
to be processed. And then you go back a month later and they give you a bunch of stuff in bags. You don't know if it's your deer. Right. You know, you don't know how much of your deer ended up in the bags and right. versus ended up on the floor versus, you know, guys always joke that uh, the, the, the <laughs> butcher will always say, sorry, man, I could only give you one back strap. The other one just, I guess it must've got uh, shot up by the bullet or something. No. That butcher has a whole lot of nice back straps at home in his freezer. Totally. <laughs> Hunters are some of my favorite people to work with. Mm. Like I've had a lot of hunters that I've worked with who are like, man, I really just want to make better use of the carcass. Like I want to learn more butchery. And I just think like hunters already bring like such a consciousness or like an experience of, I guess the death process and stuff. And they're just very attuned, I think. It's true. It's true. But there's also a lot of um, people who, Oh, I've never kept a shank. What are you going to do with oh, a shank? Oh, totally. You know, I like, know. That drives like, me are crazy. You, are you kidding me? I was right. like, come to my house sometime. You know, I'll, I'll we'll cook something up and you will never throw away another shank again. Once you, Good for you. Like, you know, once yeah. you realize the brazing technique, which is just not that hard. <laughs> That's um, true. But, okay, so I'm I'm down with brazing. Like, I, I grind my own meat. I make my own sausages. I, y- mm-hmm. You and I, in fact, when you're a lot of the, um, even in, in the book, a lot of the equipment that you recommend, I'm like, oh, yeah, I have that. I have, I have one oh, of those good. sausage stuffers. And I have, I have the Weston grinder and et cetera, et cetera. Uh-huh. But charcuterie, okay? Okay. So Tell me what your fears are. Well, okay, I, I've I've done a few things like I, I goose. I shoot Canada geese, and huh. they're not the greatest to eat because uh-huh. they basically eat golf course grass. And as you <laughs> make, I mean, are, am I eating sunshine when I'm eating a Canada goose? I don't know. I'm eating like Roundup, and I'm eating you know whatever ortho weed killer. And uh, okay, but anyway. I grind them up and with pork fat and make uh, meatballs, which is amazing. But uh-huh. I've also made several pastrami, like goose bre- breast pastrami. Oh, so I've done that. But uh-huh. that's like that's in the refrigerator, okay? Yeah. So it's it's you know it's it's in, it's, it's surrounded with salt. Yeah, yeah, it's it's in the refrigerator, and then I smoke it. Yeah. So I feel like oh, I'm not just hanging a piece of meat in my basement and letting it go moldy. Or whatever. Yeah. I would love to turn, um, you know, a whole hind quarter of a deer into a pancetta or something like that. But and I and I've watched YouTube videos and like I follow people on Instagram who do it. But I just it makes me nervous, and I haven't bring my, brought myself mm-hmm. to do something like that. Well, you should definitely do it. And and maybe okay. when I come up and eat at all of Ann Kim's restaurants, mm. we could just do it together because that'd be awesome. Like one of the things I like to do with charcuterie is just explain exactly what's going on. Like, I mean, not not that we know exactly what's going on, like all of it. Again, it's like synergy. But what are the like areas that we need to control? Because we do know the science of what's happening. And so like using enough salt, curing mm-hmm is drawing down the water activity to such a point where you're not going to be supporting the microbes that you don't want. Right. So that's step one. And then like curing salts, interacting with microbes in such a way that will like cause botulism to go, no way, not going to reproduce here. 
which takes away that danger. Right. And then the other things are just sort of like time Mm -hmm. (laughs) and Mm -hmm. temperature, which just sort of like keeps everything in the parameters that you want it in. Um, and so, I mean, especially with whole muscles, like if you were to do like a deer leg brigido or something, that's like mm-hmm. a really pretty easy. And, and like, if it goes wrong, you're going to know, you're going to know like so easily because you're going to use your sensory cues and you're not going to eat it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. So I think I did, it's one I, of those yeah. things where like, you'll be nervous, but you know, just try it anyway. I think and I said pancetta. Up, I think it. I said pancetta, and I know the difference between pancetta and prosciutto. Sure, but, yeah. But here's the thing about because I've also made um, deer. I mean, I made I have made duck breast bacon, which yeah. has been awesome because duck has this nice layer of fat on it, and definitely it, slice it and cure it. So on the prosciutto, let's say a deer hind prosciutto. Do I need to have like a a, a decommissioned refrigerator in my basement that I hang it in. So it's cool enough and dry enough because I go to Italy and uh-huh. I go into a, a, a butcher shop and they've just have like 30 prosciuttos hanging from the ceiling. Yeah. The cool know? thing about Italy is that they have a really um, supportive climate for okay. this type of stuff, you know, and I don't necessarily know, like I think of Minnesota as a cold place in the winter yeah. time, but I don't know yeah. what it's like in the summertime. You know, the thing about, like I've hung, I live in a very humid, like I live in a temperate rainforest. So I live in a very mm-hmm. humid spot that's not super cold in the wintertime, but cold and really hot and humid in the summertime. And so for me, like if I were to salt a deer leg, you know, for like a day and a half per pound and then, you know, wrap it up in cheesecloth or something and put it on my basement, you know, I've done that before and it's worked. At the same time, I've done it before and I've gotten really bad (laughs) flies. I've gotten really bad mold, right? Because the thing about the, the environment is if it's too dry and cold, then it goes really, really slow and it dries on the outside while it rots on the inside, right? If it's really, really humid and hot, then you start getting these really fuzzy staticky molds and those will just sort of start to digest the meat, right? They'll mm. kind of inject their enzymes into it and just, you'll just get really bad like texture problems and they can create off flavors, you know? So in general, like having somewhat, it's like 50 to 60 degrees Fahrenheit with like anywhere between 50 and like 75% humidity, which is pretty large range yeah, is going to get you where you want to be. And so it just depends on like time of year, the conditions in the basement, whether you have like really weird funky molds in your basement already, because that would be like a bad thing, you know? <laughs> okay. okay. Um, but most, most of the molds, like most of the aerobic like funguses that grow in the presence of oxygen are not going to like hurt you. The ones that'll grow on meat, they're not going to kill you. They're mm. just going to like mess up the meat product or create off flavors. So I think it's really worth a try. Okay. Okay. I just got, I have to approach it more as an experiment then, as opposed to something that, you know, I'm, yes. I'm super confident. It's something that you know you're going to be enjoying in 18 months. Yeah. But I think also like you can totally reach out to me and be like, all right, this leg weighs this much. Like, what do okay. I do? And then 
if mold start growing, like I have so many people that send me pictures of mold, like on a daily basis. And they're like, <laughs> what does this look like? And I'm like, ah, That's awesome. I don't know, what does it smell like? You know? And so yeah. we kind of troubleshoot. I'm happy yeah. to do that. Yeah. Well, I do know, you know, that I do know, um, I, I follow hunters who do that. They'll hang a whole deer, you know, and they'll, wow. uh, yeah. And then they'll scrape away the moldy parts and it's you know it's the dry aging kind of process with uh-huh. venison or something like that and uh-huh. uh, i've tried little bits of that and then of course you know the french famously when they shoot game birds whether it's quail or pheasants or ducks you know they'll hang them in the you know, barn with the guts in them yeah until yeah. they fall and when they fall from the like when the neck basically dissolves and uh-huh. the the duck falls to the ground, then they know it's, it's properly aged. It's aged. And then they, <laughs> awesome. Right. Like, like, how could you be nervous about your deer leg? If that's <laughs> oh, well, okay. This has been awesome. I could talk to you for another hour, but I uh, want to respect your time. And here's the deal. You come to Minnesota okay. and um, eat at Ann's place. And then we'll do a follow-up episode in person. Okay. And um, maybe eat a little venison while we're that at it. That sounds like a great plan. <laughs> I Thank really you so appreciate much for having me. Oh, yeah. And your book is just, I'm going to sing it from the rooftops that everybody should get a hold of your book. In fact, I'm going to um, give a copy to my niece who is flirting with uh, vegetarianism right now. Oh, right on. That'll be a really <laughs> as, wicked thing for you to do. As, as a 16-year-old yeah. uh, who's... <laughs> horrified by industrial meat production and as she should be yeah she should be as we Mm -hmm. all should be so nice thank you so much yeah i appreciate it take care